Happy Easter to everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. How strange it is to preach an Easter message from God's Word over the internet to an unseen congregation of God's people. If you're struggling with the idea that this gathering over the internet is or is not church, well, you're not alone. I so miss being with each of you in our life-on-life Christian fellowship as we gather. But God is sovereign, and he will bring us back together in his time when he is finished with the holy purposes that are working all around us. Even with this virus, and in spite of what our eyes see, he is worthy. Now, traditionally, Easter has been a very interesting, impactful thing on people who are not generally interested in spiritual things. In my own life and testimony, I remember that my parents, they would... They would take all of us children and they would dress us all up and we'd go to church on Easter. And that was one of the two times a year that we showed up at a church, Christmas and Easter. Can you guess which one is me? (laughs) The point is, I don't want you ever to discount the effect that being with God's people has God still works in amazing ways, even in those very short and seemingly inconsequential exposures that we have to God's people and to his gospel. So I want to start out this morning with a short testimony of God's grace in a couple that we know, Greg and Chamini Wheeler, are going to share with you now. Hi, my name is Greg Wheeler, and I've been a Christian for, for about 40 years. My name is Chamini Wheeler, and I've been Christian for about 24, 30 years. I had the privilege of being born in a Christian home. Um, I have uh, parents who love the Lord. Uh, they made it a point for us to go to church every Sunday. Uh, we went to Christian school, so I did have a good basis of my faith walk. I, unlike my husband, grew up in a Buddhist home. I was born in Sri Lanka in a little village and uh, worshipped Buddha. And I came here, I lived with my aunt and uncle. My uncle was an atheist. My aunt was Catholic by name, really only. Um, And we really went to Catholic school because they had good moral standards. I saw something that Buddhism didn't offer, um, this, this incredible love, but at the same time, I didn't understand it and did not, that had not heard that salvation message at that time until I went to a Christian summer camp. I heard the gospel for the first time and it was in that summer camp that I went up on a campfire at night and gave my life to Jesus. As a lot of people, I, I got into high school, um, met some friends, and, and really didn't live uh, the way the Lord would, would want me to. When I was in college, uh, I was uh, got a very serious condition um, known as a brain abscess uh, and nearly died from it. Um, but through that, um, I, my eyes were open to the realization that I that I need Christ, uh, that you know life is all about Him and living for Him. 
one of the things that I was known at is as giving uh, Bibles as gifts uh, during Christmas, uh, during and people, sometimes people's birthdays uh, instead of your, your typical uh, gifts. We were in the same friendship group, and um, he actually gave me a Bible for Christmas. And I was pretty offended by that because I felt like I wasn't a sinner enough to need the Bible. Uh, I had given him a sweater, much better kit than my mind. He went to get his master's in William and Mary. I had taken a, a break. And by this time, uh, my aunt and uncle had divorced and I was living with my aunt. I was tired of living life and I did not want to go through life anymore and I was kind of pretty much done and I was contemplating you know um, those things that you do it and it was and I was weeping is a good word to you to use on my bed and at that moment the sunlight literally shone on the Bible that Greg had given me and um, I had never picked up the Bible before then because I didn't think I needed it but at that moment I did God came into my life, changed me in such a profound way, and showed me how much he loved me, how much I was worth. Um, now my life has been committed to Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. We just were friends, um, and I felt the Holy Spirit saying, you know, this is the girl you're going to marry. And um, it was kind of a spontaneous uh question I was helping her move to another house uh, one day and um, uh, just popped the question didn't have a ring or anything uh, would you marry me after we got married and I went to medical school the more I studied the intricacies of the human body and how awesome we are fearfully and wonderfully made my faith in Christ grew and knew that there had to have been a creator God know that the world says it's, it's kind of foolish to believe that uh, that there's there's a designer uh, that's the only explanation there could ever be for uh, the, the beauty of our of creation and the intricacy of our of our bodies I think of my mom who um, was a devoted Buddhist her whole life through um, God's love his grace his mercy um, and his power only his power allowed my mom in her lifetime of a fundamental deep belief system to accept Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior about three weeks before she died from complications from leukemia. As we celebrate Easter, the hope of Christ, his resurrection, he conquered death. No matter what, he is sovereign and he's in control and we do not need to fear he is jesus christ who's resurrected from death what a beautiful testimony that is of god's pursuit of a human soul everyone created in his image is worth it God is amazing. And how blessed we are to be counted among those that he pursued and he saved by his grace. And not everyone knows this peace with God that we possess. Not everyone is humble enough to admit that God is who he says he is. And we are not. Recently I read an article by 
Al Mohler. Many of you know him. He's a theologian, an ordained minister, and he serves as the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I'm going to read some parts of this article to you before I get into today's study of 1 Corinthians 15. The article is called A Tale of Two Religions, and it was written around Easter of last year. So it's a year old, but it's still pertinent to Easter. I believe it came out in the New York Times on April 22nd of 2019. So let me read some of these excerpts for you. It says, two times a year, during Christmas and Easter, the secular media becomes a little less secular. The historic Christian dominance within the American population necessitates this pattern, even among the most liberal and mainstream news outlets. The cycle is easy to spot. By tradition and necessity, the major news media generally turn to cover some aspect of Christianity during Christmas and Easter. That cycle continued yesterday, but in a shocking way during an interview between influential New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof and Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. Kristoff, who deserved credit for giving attention to theological issues, has interviewed several major theological figures. He even interviewed uh, New York pastor Tim Keller and former President Jimmy Carter. Interestingly, his interviews seem to gravitate around two crucial theological questions, the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Those two theological questions rang loudly in his most recent interview with Serene Jones. In short, as the interview unfolds, Jones overthrows the entire edifice of orthodox biblical Christianity. She actually invents an entirely new religion. This article begins with Christoph asking Jones, Do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? I have problems with that, she says. When you look at the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb, it symbolizes the ultimate love in our lives that cannot be crucified or killed. So from the outset, Jones just dismisses the Bible's consistent truth claim of the bodily, physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and its centrality to the gospel. The empty tomb in Mark's gospel clearly suggests that the dead man who once resided in the tomb is now alive. And furthermore, the other three gospels and the entire testimony of the New Testament is filled with the resurrection's importance to the Christian faith and community. None of this matters to Dr. Jones. She said that the empty tomb merely symbolizes that, quote, the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Jones reduces the death and resurrection of Christ to an emotive experience recasting the empty tomb not as Jesus' triumph over sin and death, but a symbolic expression of unquenchable love. Christoph then asks, but without a physical resurrection, isn't there a risk that we are left with just the crucifixion? The Apostle Paul had the same question in mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
And that's where I want to start today. So it shouldn't be surprising that nothing much has changed. Even in Jesus' day, about 2,000 years ago, the chief priests who were Sadducees had some interesting unorthodox beliefs and theology. They believed in unrestrained free will, meaning God had no role in the personal lives of humans. Everyone was master of his or her own destiny or captain of his own ship like we studied in Ruth just a couple of weeks ago. They rejected entirely the supernatural, refuting belief in angels, demons, heaven, hell, and the resurrection. To their way of thinking, souls die with the bodies. That's it. The end. There's nothing else. But in spite of that, they strongly believed in ritual purity as prescribed by Moses in the Pentateuch. They didn't want anything to disqualify them from leading the temple services that generated their income. In fact, wealth seems to have been the number one belief of the Sadducees. Well, not only the Sadducees, but even the Greeks had a lot of disparaging things to say about the resurrection. In Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 18, we read this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Then in verse 32 of that chapter, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Not much has changed. Ever since the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve relied on their own reasoning ability more than the Word of God, they missed the truth. And so they remained outside of the protection from God's wrath that Jesus guarantees. That's where I want to pick up our message for today, as is our habit of letting God's work speak to us. We want to look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 1 through 28, and then 50 through 58. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul starts chapter 15 reminding the professing believers of what they already heard and what they already said that they believed. They said they believed in the foolishness of the cross. How many people do you know that say, oh, I believe in God, but they live like God does not even exist do these Corinthians believe that way? We know that at least some of them did. In verse 12, Paul asks, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He is questioning their belief. How do we see belief lived out in people's lives? 
Jesus talks about what it means to believe and what it looks like in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9. He tells a a parable to illustrate it, and I'll read that for you. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, and since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now some of the Corinthians were like some of these seeds in the parable. Some of us are like those seeds also. Which seed are you? Have the birds of naturalistic thought come and eaten your belief so that you see no need for it? Or have you jumped at the chance to believe and then fell away when things got tough? Or people mocked you for believing? Maybe you were like the seeds among the thorns and you let the issues of life choke out your childlike faith. Something like this virus that's going on now. Or maybe, just maybe, you have that kind of belief that is true and deep and real and it's changed your life now you live for Christ and not simply for yourself anymore Jesus says you will be used to produce everlasting fruit your faith will be multiplied in ways that you cannot even imagine so the message here in chapter 15 about the resurrection this is not an isolated new topic that Paul intends to educate the Corinthians about here at the end of the book No, it's actually the culmination of a discussion that started all the way back in chapter 1 about the gospel, the crucifixion, and the grave. Back in chapter 1, starting in verse 26, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul talks about the foolishness of the cross. In verses 27 to 29, he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, Our faith, it should not rest fully in the natural plausibility of the resurrection. No, it should rest in the complete truth of the Word of God. Our salvation came about not purely by our reasoning through the evidences of the Scriptures, through the evidences of the resurrection, even though by all accounts the evidence is abundantly there but by the work of the Holy Spirit of God who works mightily in us to convict us of our sin and cause us to repent before a holy God. These Corinthians said that they believed that Jesus was crucified 
And all the wrath of a holy God was placed on Jesus at the cross where he paid the awful price. Did they really believe it? On Good Friday, just a couple of days ago, we participated in a Passover Seder here where we saw how the lamb was sacrificed and the blood was painted on the door frames to save the firstborn Israelites from death. Now this lamb, it pre-configured Jesus as the sacrificial lamb to save us from our sin and restore us to a right relationship with God. Paul started out this letter to the Corinthians with the proclamation of the crucifixion. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And now we see him closing this book with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're back in chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now if you know anything about the church in Corinth, you know that there were divisions and there were factions among them. They always had some kind of controversy going on. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Another division. They were a mess. I picture it this way. The average church member in Corinth, they were torn between those that said, there's no resurrection of the dead, that's foolishness. And those that already said they believed that Jesus was raised to life. Well, they can't both be right, can they? Without a doubt, some in the church at Corinth, they were destabilizing things. They were shaking people up with their conclusions about the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of believers. Some commentators wonder about the effect that the Sadducees that were coming into the church were having on the church at that time, since they did not believe in the resurrection at all. Or the Greeks, who thought that it was utter nonsense. There were, there were a lot like people today that mock us and our faith and say there's nothing after this life. So we should be like verse 32 here in chapter 15 that says, If there's no resurrection, then we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The article I read for you, it scoffs at the thought of a real bodily resurrection of Jesus, or any of us for that matter. It relies totally on man's intellect and reasoning ability. The gospel itself is actually being taught in some so-called seminaries as being untrue. That is merely an analogy of the spirituality invented by some men and women who think that they know better than the historical true account in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this is the backdrop of the next nine verses where Paul lays out for them one of the oldest creeds in the Christian church. And his own testimony he connects to the back end of it. I'm going to call this section the first importance of the message. We're going to take this first part in two sections. First, the creed in verses 3 through 7. 
Verse 3 starts out, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul uses language here that's different than he uses anywhere else. He's delivering to them what he received from others before him. And some commentators believe that he received it from Peter or James when he spent those early first few weeks in Jerusalem before he went off to Tarsus. In any case, he says it is of first importance for you to hear. And what is that creed? Let's go on. Verses 3 through 7. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. You know, 1 Corinthians was written within 25 years of the resurrection. And some commentators believe that this, this creedal language here in verses 3 to 7 that we just read, it was used by the church in general as to what they believed. It started within five years of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that source was about as contemporary as you can get. This creed, this good news, is the message that Paul preached all over the known world of that day. This message that Paul preached to the Corinthians, and the message I'm preaching to you today, is without a doubt the most important message you will ever hear. Oh, how easy it is to say that the most important thing is the thing that's happening right now like finding a cure for COVID-19. Well, people thought the same thing in 1918 with the Spanish flu. And it, it is a terrible thing. It does seem that we should put all of our effort into that. And to a degree, we should. But this virus is temporary. We, we are not temporary. We are eternal beings that will live on beyond this life. So I ask you, on which side of eternity... Do you want to be the one that spends uncountable days in sinless fellowship with God Almighty or uncountable days in torment in the unquenchable fires of hell forever? I know what I choose. And now Paul, he adds his own testimony to this list of evidences that was already stated. And he says, starting in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they... So we preach, and so you believed. Paul was no dummy. He was a smart man. He was intelligent. The Lord allowed him to be brought up as a Pharisee, a serious student of the Old Testament, surpassing many of his contemporaries. But none of this prepared him for his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was a learner his whole life, a student of God's Word, but without the Spirit of God opening his mind to the truths he learned from the Scripture, from the church, and from Jesus himself 
All his previous learning was empty. Let's move on to the next section, verses 12 to 19. And this part I'm calling the folly of the cross without the resurrection. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is a rhetorical set of circumstances outlined by Paul in a systematic deductive reasoning method that the commentators call the modus tollens. It's a method of propositional logic. Well, some of you out there are way smarter than I am, and you know what he's talking about. I looked at it more like uh, my high school math class, where we learned about the transitive law, you know, where A equals B and B equals C, so therefore A must equal C, correct? That's pretty simple. Even I can understand that. Well, then we would have to agree if we apply that kind of rhetorical argument to this argument, A, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. B, and what a bunch of fools we are. C, that means our preaching is useless and your faith and mine is hopeless. The life that we are living has no purpose. It's a lie and we should be pitied more than anyone else because of our wasted life. It means that no matter what we do or how hard we try to be pure and righteous, we can never live up to God's standard of perfection. And so all of us, we would remain in our sins and rightly deserve the wrath of a holy God. Even worse, we would be telling lies about God, that he did something that he hasn't really done. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to be in that position. All that is seemingly good would then depend wholly on our own weak attempts at goodness. Or to take it even a step further, we wouldn't even have any reason to even desire to do good. We would just follow verse 32, which is actually a quote from Isaiah 22:13. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. A gospel without the resurrection is no gospel at all. It is incomplete. But now here it comes. Are you ready for the next verse? Verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. He is risen. And I just want to sing about it, don't you? Luke, lead us.
power of Christ I'll stand here in the power of Christ I'll stand thank you worship team now let's get back and read through this section before we go on starting in verse 20 but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits and then at his coming those who belong to Christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet and when it says all things are put in subjection it's plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him in other words the father when all things are subjected to him then the son himself will be subjected to him the father who put all things in subjection under him why that God may be all in all Paul tells us here that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died which obviously means that there are coming others behind him first means there is a second and that there is an order to this resurrection of the dead the implication here is that God is sovereign over all things even the resurrection of Christ the resurrection happened in God's time in God's way and in God's order he has the power to accomplish all of this including conquering death the last enemy to be defeated Remember, death was introduced in the garden when Adam sinned. And God said to him in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so it comes full circle. You see, death did not always reign. We see in verse 22 that began in Adam, but it will be defeated through Christ, the second Adam. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus will submit himself back to God the Father when every rule, every authority, and every power are defeated. And then finally the last enemy, death, is defeated. You see, death is only defeated if life is given back. If the resurrection is true, that Jesus who died was buried and was bodily raised again to life as the first fruits, and then those who belong to him will follow in their appointed time. And when this happens, verse 28 will be real and true to us, that God will be all in all. I don't know about you, but I am so overwhelmed with thanksgiving and gratefulness for a God who loved me and you enough to send his son 
to take my punishment and give me his righteousness. As the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, <laughs> you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The fact of the resurrection guarantees all of what follows throughout history and into the future. I will rejoice with a joy that is truly inexpressible. There are no words to describe the character of God who loved us enough to plan and to execute this marvelous way for him to be true to himself, consistent in his own justice, while also forgiving me of my sin. Because Jesus paid it all for me. We're going to end this great section 50 through 58, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This part of Scripture is so often used at the graveside during a funeral. And it really, truly is a comfort to those who have lost a loved one who died in Christ. This passage is true. And it becomes our experience at the end times when Jesus comes again and the dead are bodily raised to life. How do we know? Because Jesus, the first fruits, did it in his own resurrection. He's already been raised. And those who believe in Jesus, those who put all their faith and trust in the one who paid the price for our sins at the cross who submit their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, they will be resurrected next and enter into eternal life. And then finally, those without Christ will be raised to eternal punishment in the fires of hell to suffer without end in the lake of fire. They will be the last to be raised. Do you see the connection the inevitable chain of events that was set in motion by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's why everybody wants to debunk it. That is why Paul wrote this section of the letter to the Corinthians. You see, we are all eternal beings. The only question is whether you're going to be raised to eternal life or eternal suffering. Oh, my friend, I beg you, 
I beg you today, if you do not know this God-man as, as Lord and Savior, this Jesus, submit to him today. Confess to him that you are a sinner, unable to save yourself, and tell him you believe that he was crucified to pay the price of your sin and mine, and that God raised him on the third day to sit at the right hand of the Father until he has defeated every rule, every authority, and every power. And then finally, the last enemy, death. Then death will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I hear the Savior say,
And the final verse I leave with you, you who have decided to follow Jesus. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we labor, but not in vain. We preach but not in futility. We are steadfast in the face of uncertainty, immovable in the love of God and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and comforted by the Holy Spirit who lives victoriously in us. We thank you that Jesus was raised and that we have the promise from him that we will also be raised on that last day and death will be swallowed up in victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessings to you today as you celebrate the resurrection. Happy Easter.